Thank you for joining us today on the FTR State of Freight podcast. We recently held a joint webinar with the Midwest Association of Rail Shippers, featuring the Mars President and EVP and CCO for Watco Companies, Stefan Loeb, as well as the FTR Chairman and CEO, Eric Starks, and FTR Vice President of Rail and Intermodal, Todd Tranowski. The webinar was titled, Mixed Signals, Making Sense of What the Economy and Freight Markets Are Telling Us. And today we are sitting back down to answer the questions that listeners had during the webinar. If you weren't able to attend the webinar, we have made the full replay available to our podcast listeners, and we highly recommend that you watch that. The full presentation is an hour long and provides an economic overview, an assessment of the freight markets, and a detailed look at intermodal and rail equipment markets. The full replay can be viewed by going to www.ftrintel.com forward slash Mars. Again, that is www.ftrintel.com forward slash M-A-R-S. And with that, I'm going to pass the mic to Stefan Loeb to lead the conversation and answer your questions. Good afternoon, everybody at Mars. This is the president of Mars, Stefan Loeb. Uh, welcome. It's the 1st of September, and uh, this is our follow-up podcast to our virtual meeting that we had last week with our friends at FTR. Joining me today at FTR are Eric Starks and Todd Chernowski, who were the great presenters at last week's uh, event. I just want to quickly recap uh, for those of you that uh, participated, and more importantly, for those that you didn't and are listening, uh, we had almost 170 participants at one point. It was an excellent turnout. Uh, really enjoyed all your questions. And so because we had so many questions and not enough time uh, for follow-up, we're doing this podcast. Eric and Todd, again, were gracious with their time. And uh, I love talking to these guys in general. So we're going to do a podcast to get the rest of the questions answered. And and who knows, maybe get in some other trouble talking about other topics. So uh, with that, again, I want to thank FTR and everyone at Mars for their support. And I'll uh, throw it over to Eric. Eric, take it take it over. No, no, this is great. So uh I really appreciate uh, being able to be here, kind of talk to this. Uh, so this market was, you know, it continues to be crazy. So it, um, I think being able to have us sit down and, and talk through things was uh, really good the, the other day. Um, I know that there are a fair amount of uh, questions we need to, we need to get to. And um, so why don't we, uh, why don't we kick those, why don't we kick those off and we can kind of just uh, do a little round table discussion here. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, Todd, any opening comments before I uh, lob the first question in? Not really. Let's jump right in. Perfect. Okay. Uh, the, the one question that, that hit me, and actually we had a couple follow-up uh, f- folks in the rail industry. We all started kind of chatting, uh, Todd, after your presentation. You did a really good job bifurcating the intermodal recovery in rail versus the industrial segment or industrial product segment. Um, and, and you actually touched on the lumber and building products area. But what we thought was so interesting in the last three or four weeks, uh, with no sign of, of, of slowing down, we are getting inundated as a rail industry on lumber requests and buildings. So the question that, that I had, and then it's a couple other people uh, at Mars kind of shared and, and discussed with me, um, is are, are, is that when was that data? Are we starting to see a lumber recovery? Because it sure feels like it in the industry, the requests for center beams and, and other things that, that seems to show that the economy is starting to build again, at least on the home front. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Definitely the economic data. If you look at starts, if you look at permits, definitely the housing market's coming alive, as you would expect. Mortgage rates at record lows. Uh, People, as they work from home more, they need more space. They want 
you know, a, new houses, bigger houses, all of those things. However, when you look at the rail data, when you look at the lumber wood, it's really not doing anything other than moving seasonally. Now, could that change? Is that likely to change? Possibly, given where things are. Now, there are a lot of cars put in storage during the pandemic. There were a lot of cars put in storage before the pandemic as the railroads went into precision railroading operating mode. And they tried to really cut down the size of their asset bases on rail cars, on uh, train crews, on really everything. And those cars don't just come out of storage immediately. There's a lag. And so it's going to take some time for the carriers, if as there is that demand, for them to react. They can't just get those cars where, they need, where they're needed immediately. There's going to be a process in terms of how many cars they want to bring out, how sustainable they view it, and how quickly they can get those rail cars from where they are to where they're needed. Yeah, and let me throw this there, too. So it is a bit surprising to see that they're, that they're having a hard time getting, getting the cars in the sense that we know that there are plenty of cars in the market, that, it's, that there's not something fundamentally that has changed with, with supply um, on that. So it's, it's one of those things that the underlying pressure continues to be, to be there. Uh, and it's very possible that it is uh, the, the, the basis of the question could be um, uh, based upon the different mills, you know, so it's, it may not be all the way through the whole, through the whole system. So this is something we're going to, I think we're going to really have to play, pay t- close attention to because housing is, definitely one area where we'd love to see the market uh, kind of kind of pick up and we do know that a lot of the uh, consumers are going out uh, to the uh, to the home depots the lowe's and menards all of these different things and um, you know buying buying up lumber and trying to to do things everybody's sitting around home and they start seeing all these projects that they haven't touched forever yeah. Yeah. I, know I have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, you know, anecdotally, uh, you know, again, you just look at the Watco network and you just see tremendous demand from our sawmills um, for these products. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, again, um, that's to me why I think as a global pandemic, it has had the most, you know, micro impacts where maybe lumber in, in, big economic data shows no real recovery, but then on a short line in the Midwest that serves, you know, uh, a lumber producer, you know, we can't get enough center beams to, to meet the demand. And, you know, I just wonder guys, like, you know, that, that's been a fleet that was dead for, you know, how many years? I think when I got in the industry, center beams were dying and stored. And, and so, you know, I think, I wonder, I'll ask it, how much do you think that impacts it too, is the fact that this was a car type that was hurt for so long? Did that have any impact on this? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it means that those cars that are in storage, you know, they may have sat for a good long while and they may need to have mechanical inspections. They may need to have work done to them before they're just put back in the system. It may not be as simple as pull the car out of storage and and bring it back. They may have to go to a shop first and do some work to get that car ready because there, there were a ton of cars built, as you say, back in the you know, the early 2000s, mid 2000s to meet the housing boom before the, the Great Recession. But those cars are, are still around by and large. They're young enough that they're still there. They just may not be in serviceable condition immediately.
I agree. If we've seen it over the last uh, five years, you know, uh, that means that there's enough cars there. So yeah. that's not an issue. And we're just not seeing a large scrapping of these cars. So it, it, that's not the fundamental mm-hmm. problem uh, right now. So. One of the one uh, switching gears uh, to the, the intermodal side, there was a good question talking about um, the some of the congestion seen in the Chicago market for intermodal. But instead of being that specific, uh, there's been a lot of news since actually our our uh, presentation virtual conference last week about issues on the West Coast too. So even since your presentation, there's been, been a bunch of news items. So do you want to care to comment on the current state of intermodal and, and LA and the congestion there and, and vis-a-vis how it affects the, the North American network? Yeah, certainly. I mean, out West, there's sort of been the epicenter of the congestion. You know, Out in Southern California, there have been a lot of issues out there, particularly around get the railroads being able to have the crews necessary to move the freight. And there was definitely some anecdotal discussion uh, when we go, when we talk to carriers about, you know, the $600 extra unemployment benefit being an impediment to bringing train crews back, to getting them to come off of furlough, to come uh, back to work and move freight. And it's something that we've definitely seen. And going into the, uh, going into the peak season, it is something that uh, is concerning. You know, we don't expect a huge dramatic peak season, but we expect volumes to follow the seasonal patterns. So from that standpoint, volumes are going to be higher than they are today. Volumes, you're going to see the seasonal peak that you typically see, and railroads are going to have to find a way to be able to cope with that and have the resources in place to be able to do that. How much do you think, uh, you know, we've had a lot of new ports come online and then a tremendous, uh, you know, supply chain interruption here with COVID. Is there anything uh, to the fact that maybe the shippers are going back to old reliable Port of LA Long Beach as kind of the industry stalwart? Is there any of that? Or is this just, like you said, just kind of the trend of more volumes at the end of the year for Christmas rush? Well, there definitely is some of that going on. If you look at the market share change, you know, the pandemic has taken what was a trend of the West Coast losing market share and the East Coast gaining market share that had been going on for some time and reversed it. You know, people are more and more using the West Coast ports in part because they're no longer using the Pacific Northwest ports as much as they were and also because the Southern California ports are the quickest way to get those volumes to market. That is the quickest way. You avoid 10 to 15 days additional transit time using the all-water option of the East Coast. You have an abundant amount of transload capacity near the ports that allow you, if you want, to transload that freight into a domestic box and move it directly to your distribution center and the domestic container. And so folks are definitely using LA Long Beach in a way that they haven't in the uh, in the years and quarters prior. Yeah, Todd, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was actually thinking about that, that because of the the timing of getting it through, uh, it's still faster. Even if it's a slower getting it through the port, it's still a faster move getting it to the end. And, and one of the things that we're seeing, and we talked about this the other day, is that with the low stockpile of inventories for the retail market, there is a push to get those back or move them through the system faster. Because before, you know, if you if uh, inventory was fine, you had enough sitting around, 
then you could slow steam it around to the East Coast, no big deal. And now you're like, that's just really not desirable for, for the moment. Now, will we go back that way? I think so. I think we'll get to a point where you have inventories kind of right size, there's less pressure in the system. Uh, then you can kind of start diversifying where you where you move your stuff, uh, which port you use. No, that's uh, th that's all interesting uh, feedback there. You know, one of the things that the question talked about with congestion in Chicago, I think, was inferring what what I've talked uh, a bunch about at your conference uh, and and with you guys offline all the time, which is you know railroads have gotten very good at at kind of right sizing, but. You know, the problem is, and I've said this before, so this, these are Stefan's words, you know, the, the railroads can never reach equilibrium, though, because what's equilibrium in transportation? That doesn't exist, I don't think. Actually, there's probably a, a law of physics that shows that. But, um, you know, you guys look at this industry all the time. How do you tell or how do you help your customers or, or Mars folks figure this out in with, with the railroad's pressure on shareholders to always be right, how that impacts things like what we're seeing on the West Coast. What do you look for and what should our membership be looking for going forward on this to see if it gets better or worse? So I'll, I'll take, I'll take a, a stab at this. I'm sure Todd, you'll want to jump in. So the whole thing always comes down to freight in the system, right? The, the economy is always either going up or going down or flatline, whatever that looks like. And it's never completely stagnant. It was very fascinating when we were seeing, coming out of the Great Recession, we saw the economy, uh, GDP sitting about 2%. And voila, what happened? We had kind of stability, right? For the first time in a while, there was and I think everybody thought, oh, we need three and a half percent GDP to continue to grow. And we've realized, oh, two percent is actually great. It's predictable. We're not creating overcapacity. We're not doing you're not doing crazy things. So in an environment that we're in right now, when you have big swings in the freight market, it is nearly impossible to see equilibrium. And so one of the things we're really paying attention to is as the freight markets come back up, is there enough equipment there to support that infrastructure? Because that's one part of the equation. And then the other part is, are the, in, in, I guess in this case, is, are the railroads positioned to move that freight through the system efficiently? And not even efficiently isn't even the, even the right word. It's predictably. Is there predictability and consistency? And that's really, really one of the things that's, that's, uh, helpful. And finally, then we need to try to understand, can they right size the overall fleet of the cars to make sure you don't have too much in the system so that you're overly congested, yet you have enough cars in storage that when things do heat up, you can quickly get them out. You know, they're not sitting at the far back and you have to move everything out of the way so you can get to it. Stuff like that. So we're totally paying attention to that. I, Todd, I, I can tell you, you want to jump in. So give, give it a go. Yeah, I mean, when, I, when the metrics I look at, I look at the car loadings metrics, I look at the service metrics, and I look at the rate metrics. Because really, we've always seen in railroading, as volumes come back, service goes down. I mean, that, that's been happening ever since the dawn of railroading. But the question is, to what level does service deteriorate? 
do you get a situation like we're in now where we went up very, very high during the pandemic? And yes, we're coming down, but we're still settling out above the 10-year average at very strong levels on an overall basis. Now, there are certainly you know, some pockets like we talked about with Intermodal and the LA Basin. There are pockets of things that aren't smooth, but on a, on a network-wide, all-carrier basis, service is at a pretty good level. And the railroads have an incentive in a, in a percentage of railroading world and with the pressure they get from Wall Street to keep capacity below demand because that drives their ability to get pricing and their ability to get rate going forward. However, they have to be careful because you want to keep the service at a certain level because ultimately that service product is what's going to drive your market share, your volumes, and your pricing ability over the longer term. And that's the thing I've said. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. You know, shippers are always willing to pay for service. You know, the, the, the absolute level of the rate is not necessarily as important as the predictability that Eric was talking about. When you ship by rail, even if it's intermodal, even if it's a couple of days longer than truck, so long as it's always two days longer than truck, I can build my supply chain around that. Where I get into trouble and where, you know, the term years ago was about substitute service and truckers not want to use intermodal because it was, it was substitute service for, their, for their, their shippers because it wasn't as good because some days it would be two days longer. Some days it'd be five days longer. Some days it'd be 14 days longer. Those are the things that drive supply chain folks nuts, that drive shippers nuts because you can't plan how much inventory you need. You can't plan your distribution facilities out. So for me, I look at the balance of, of carloads, of service, and of rates to try and figure out where is that, where is that unicorn that everybody can, can get along with. The railroads can provide the predictability and shippers can know that, okay, I might pay a little bit more to move it by rail, but I'm going to get it when they can actually deliver when they say they can deliver it. So let me, let me ask a question. Stefan, you can even jump in. I'd, I'd love to get your thought on this because the whole intention of PSR, right, Precision Schedule Railroading, was to create an environment where you had that predictability and that, that consistency. Is that, is that actually happening and that shippers feel like there is more predictability now? than there was, let's say, two or three years ago? Yeah, so I, I always, um, you're, you're going to accuse me of dodging this question for a little bit. I'm not trying to. The, the thing is, you, you, and I think a lot of folks have done a good job about this. To answer any question about PSR, you have to look at it of which railroad you're talking about and, and when are you talking about it. And so, again, you, you look at PSR today. There are a few railroads that are past PSR. I mean, they're, you know, in, in a way, uh, you know, a lot of folks have written about this. It's kind of the, they call it the post Hunter Harrison, right? It's going back and, and trying to build the relationships with the shippers and using that highly efficient network. And then there are those railroads that are still essentially going through it. And then there's one, you know, that kind of never has. Um, and so it's, that's, it's a tough question to answer, but, but the way I would say it is we have seen as both you know, one of the largest short line holding companies and also a large rail shipper in that, you know, almost half or more of our 90 terminals have rail. Uh, you know, we've seen a situation where service is good. Um, 
it's it would I call it consistent to truck no I mean Todd's spot on with the issues with truck uh, that we compete with all the time but it's good and uh, generally we have found ways through our partnerships with the class ones to do things like pre-blocking uh, and all sorts of little tricks that fit into their network that really accentuates their hook and haul less yarding events, all the things that Hunter used to harp on that gets a negative connotation. We've been able to blend our first mile, last mile into a really good solution for our customers. So I would say in that sense, it's been very good. Now, having said that though, Eric, you know, for the last six months, it's because volume fell off a cliff for class one. So they have a lot more room, uh, you know, and less congestion. Really? It dropped? Oh my God. Is that what you were... Isn't that what Todd was talking about? I thought, <laughs> did I fall asleep during that presentation? No. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's how I would answer that. The service is very good. Uh, eliminating yard events in general, I think, is is pretty good. We have seen instances where we struggle in lanes now because uh, certain cars have to take an elongated route around. But in general, it, it's been a good thing. If you're flexible and if you're willing to, uh, you know, figure out how we as the first mile, last mile fit into that total supply chain with what the big railroads are doing. That makes sense. Todd, thoughts on any of that? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Beautiful. Uh, one thing I wanted to hop back to, Eric, is, is one of the things you look at and you made a comment about car supply. And, and we had a really good conversation about the amount of storage stored cars out there. And uh, there are some questions uh, that Todd answered specifically to the, the industries. Uh, but one of the things that people ask about a lot, so I'll ask the generic question, uh, how do car owners view that scrap versus store uh, decision? But then more intrinsically now to COVID, does that change at all or do you see it changing at all? Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll jump in here first. I think uh, I don't think it changes because of COVID. Um, I I think the underlying dynamics that they make the decision on is still there, but COVID changed it in the sense of we saw a a, a change in the amount of freight in in the system, and so it has been very clear. For example, right, if you go with coal cars. You know that that we were already seeing a a, a decline, um, a secular decline in that particular market, and so that has not gone away. In effect, this kind of accelerated it even more. So you're just you have more cars sitting there. So ultimately, you know, the part of the decision making is what is the price of scrap? Can I get for it? Um, what is my cost of setting it into a, uh, a yard and having it sit there. Um, and, you know, those are two, two of the big, and how old is it, right? What's the residual value on this? In a lot of cases, you know, most of these cars that we're talking about have really no residual value other than scrap. So I think it's getting to the point where they finally just say, okay, I, the scrap price may or may not come up, whatever that is, let's just start getting rid of some of these cars. But I don't, I don't see them there yet. Mm-hmm. And so we typically, every, the cycles have always been, it, it's always fascinating. Scrap prices 
typically have always led a typically have led a recovery. Not always, typically led a recovery in the in the grand scheme of things. So what happens? Scrap prices go up, and then they start scrapping cars, and then next thing you know, freight goes up, and they go, "Huh, I needed those cars. What's going on?" So you know, I don't see that happening this time because of the type of cars we're talking about scrapping, Todd. Yeah, no, I mean, you think about the, the two biggest car types that, that our candidates and people talk about and people come to us and ask us this question a lot. You know, the two biggest car types are the open top hoppers that are aluminum sided for coal and the small cube covered hoppers. And they're two of the worst utilized fleets out there. If you look at utilization by car type, they are two of the leaders, as everybody would expect, between coal and sand. Now, as Eric said, scrap has always led to recovery. So you would expect to see the price of scrap come up as the economy recovers. As we get into the back half of this year in 2021, you would expect some start to come out of it. That scrap price will come up. Now that will allow some of those older cars, particularly those open top hoppers for coal that have one use and one use only. You know, those cars are now, they were predominantly built between 1995 and 2007. So they're right in that 15 to 20, 25-year window where if you get a little bit of an uplift in the scrap price, you know they are now economical to take off the books because coal is not coming back. It was in structural decline before the pandemic. The pandemic, in a lot of ways, accelerated that decline because the market share that coal loses this year that it wasn't expected to lose it's not market share. It's suddenly going to regain in 2021, 2022, and beyond. Natural gas remains inexpensive. Renewables remain more and more accessible to parts of the grid, particularly in those grid regions where coal is well entrenched, like Texas. You know, so you have more of these threats to coal that, that aren't going away and could, in fact, cause some of the planned retirements that are on the books for 2023, 2024, 2025 get moved up because they find they just don't need those units. And so those cars, you could see those move off the books. The cars that's going to be harder to scrap are those small cube covered hoppers. They're just so young. You know, they're five, seven year old cars and it's just a very large write-off for, for a lot of those owners to, to scrap those cars. And so those cars are going to be in the fleet. They're going to be a drag on utilization. And the industry is going to have to find a way to do something with those cars, convert them to other services, do something with them because the drilling sand market, you know, had issues before the pandemic as locally sourced brown sand made inroads into the drilling fields. And now with crude prices fairly stable at $40, $45 a barrel, Drilling has come down. Even if drilling comes back at $55 or $60 a barrel, which is our expectation of where you would see drilling come back, you're not necessarily going to see that come back with higher cost white sand. And so those small cube covered hoppers, that's the fleet that it's young enough that it's not really a candidate for scrapping. And what do we do with those cars? So there's, a, there's another car type that I've been trying to, to – better understand some of the pressure because uh, when we look at the tank car market and we look at what is happening, we, we've got, you know, a decent number of um, large uh, general purpose cars, you know, so you, for, for mainly for crude, you got petro, 
petroleum, you've got, so, and you've got some ethanol. So you've got these, these cars out there and we've seen the fundamental demand drop for crude production in, in general. And when we got into the pandemic at the early part, we're like, oh my gosh, all these cars are going to just be completely sitting idled. And they, in essence, were at first. And then what happened? Oil prices went negative. They like, we have no more places to store. They're stored at wherever they can. So they, they use some of those cars for that storage. Now that has cha- that dynamic has changed. So trying to understand the correct size for that fleet right now, I think is somewhat difficult. And I think people are going through the process of saying, am I going to need these cars in the future? And I, I think the general thought process is yes, because the North American market is such a big player now within crude production. Uh, but, but there's just a lot of question marks there. Because if you see fundamental demand for the globe can remaining weak for an extended period of time, it makes it much harder to kind of invest in that equipment and and hold on to it. So I'm kind of curious to see how that one plays out. Plus then we have the the issue with uh, regulations coming up. And so they're going to have to decide what do they do with these cars anyways. Yeah. Just an anecdote from my perspective, Eric, on the tank car side, I think what we've learned, especially when you see things like, uh, you know, the pipeline not getting approval and so then crude by rail fires up again in a certain lane. I think what, I think we are going to see some sort of spot market moves for a while. Now, I can't tell you what that looks like or where it's even going to go, um, but as a railroad and, and shipper terminal operator, that's good for us because we know there are plenty of cars out there. Now, the problem is if you own the cars, you just don't know, you know, again, what, what the right size is. So that leads me into kind of a follow-up question about rail cars. And, and it just fascinates me. Um, the, and I'm going to draw the line between builders and owners. Um, the fleet from a shipper perspective, a railroad short-line railroad perspective for me is, you know, obviously there are cars out there in storage. If we ever have a customer that needs cars, they're available, we get them leased. And it's been that way for, for quite some time. I still shake my head at how big these car build numbers are, however. And I just don't, I, to all the, the headwinds that you talked about and the types of cars that these are that are being built, Help educate me and Mars on what's going on there, please. It's it's a fascinating topic to discuss. I think uh, it certainly is. And when the pandemic broke, we pulled our forecast for build down dramatically for 2020, figuring that between the market being what it is, COVID 19 restrictions around production facilities, social distancing in production facilities, that we were going to see the build come down dramatically. And what happened in the second quarter? You know, they built every car they had. You know, they ran flat out, and the build for second quarter blew our expectations flat out of the water. And now we expect to see that occur again in third quarter. We expect them to keep those rates up. The problem is the orders have pretty well dried up. When you think about where utilization is, when you think of, you know, the market itself, as you said, if you want cars, you can get them leased. You know, you can find a secondary piece of equipment and not have to go place a new build order. And so that has a reckoning here, we think, in 2021. You know, in the latest quarter, we moved our 2020 expectation back up into the low 30s to account for the stronger build rates. 
but our 2021 number didn't move much because we just we wonder where the orders are going to come from. Most of the cars in the backlog today fall into two car types. They're tanks and they're covered hoppers. And those are both highly dependent on the energy sector. There isn't a lot of diversification out there among the car types. And with where the carload markets are and where we forecast the carload markets to be, we don't see carload growth in 2020. And we see it growing slowly in 2021. So there is a question of, in these general merchandise car types, in the box cars, the gondolas, the flat cars, where do the orders come from? And that is sort of what we're looking at in the 2021 is who's going to order these cars. We think once we get out to 2022, there will be enough of a freight recovery to support some additional ordering and some additional building. But between here and there is a long way. And it's all in those two main car types. Uh, let me let me make a, a couple points to that, that jump, jump off of this. One is on the build rates in the second quarter. Um, it is really fascinating because we saw the heavy truck market. So when they power units, those, so trucks, they dropped off production wise. It came down, it did exactly what we thought it was going to do. But what's really fascinating though is trailers, over the road trailers continued to produce. And so it's a very similar environment uh, for the rail car market as it is for the trailer market. And so, uh, and we've act, we actually saw orders fall off there, but they've started to pick up for trailers a little bit again. Um, what's different here is exactly what Todd said. We are in essence only in a handful of car types where we're seeing a, some level of activity. And one of the areas, because if we look at the covered hoppers, let's go with that first one, we, we're definitely starting to see chemical demand picking up again. That's, that's good. So you're going to see plastic pellets. Um, but then the second is we saw zero change in the behavior for grain cars. The grain market is, has been either right near or dead on its five-year average, and it did not deviate. Every other commodity had a major change, and it deviated. So the demand, the underlying demand for that particular car type did not change based upon the freight market. And that is, is really interesting. And then finally, when you go and you look at the tanks, you have a large number of backlogs still there. So they're going to continue to, to build. So, but to the broader point is our expectation is that things are going to start moving lower as we go forward. There's just, there's just too much capacity out there for most of the cars. Yeah, I go back to when I first uh, got into the industry uh, right in 2002, which was, I believe, the the lowest year, or maybe in 2001, I can't remember, but we were talking like, I think it was like 8,000 deliveries or something like that. And not to say it would ever go back there, but I, I just, we haven't had one of those in a while. And it just, it, it's interesting to see the, the, the order numbers. And I really appreciate uh, both your, your color around that. Um, and it's interesting. I feel like I'm going to open Pandora's box here, but but the last question I had, um, and I just find it fascinating because of COVID and everything else. Um, everybody loves to talk about elections and election years, and no one in freight is talking about what's going on. And I know we want to be very careful about this, as as polarized as our 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 uh, our world is, but. Talk to us about what we should be looking for um, 
just as we approach this election, because most of the time the economy just kind of goes on pause while while we wait at this time. Is that happening here? What What are your thoughts? And uh, you know, just interested to hear your thoughts without again opening up Pandora's box. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we definitely before COVID nineteen came in, business investment had already sort of come to the sidelines. You know, when you think of the U.S. economy falling into two broad buckets of consumer and, and business, business investment had already pulled to the side. You know, they were already, with all the uncertainty around the election, pulling out, waiting to see what would happen. And then COVID hit, and now we're coming out of COVID. Businesses aren't going to necessarily get in there and spend again until they have clarity, until they at least have the rough outline of what the rules of the game are going to be. And until you have clarity, you know, you're not going to know that because the two administrations are going to have vastly different rules of the road for business and for freight in general. And so once you have that resolution, you can at least without knowing exactly what's going to get passed, you know what the broad strokes are going to be, what the points of emphasis are going to be uh, for those particular administrations. One of the things that we haven't seen in 2020 that was talked about a lot and really talked about, you know, for all of the, the Trump administration was an infrastructure bill. And that is something, you know, it was up for renewal this year. You know, it hasn't gotten done. It's not going to get done this year. There just aren't the legislative days to get something like that done. You think about where we are. Congress doesn't come back until after Labor Day. They have about three weeks. There's a lot of just talk about another stimulus package, another stimulus program, what that looks like. The House has various investigations ongoing. Congress is going to go out in October to campaign before the election. When they come back, they're in a lame duck session. So you're not going to get it done this year. So that means you're not going to see an infrastructure bill until at least the first or second quarter of 2021. By the time that money gets flowing, it's going to be the back half of 2021. Now that has implications for the freight market. You know, when you think about the aggregates market, when you think about some of those, you know, those freight specific sectors that could benefit from that, that need a benefit. You know, if you look at stone, sand, and gravel, you've got crushed stone in there for aggregates, you've got drilling sand in there, you've got all of those things that have taken a hit. You know, there's not going to be any relief for those sorts of sectors until at least, you know, the mid to late next year. And that means that's going to be a headwind for freight movement. You know, if you're in those businesses, if you're looking for volume growth, you know, there's no help from the federal government because you're not, you're not going to get anything this year. You're not going to get anything probably into well into next year, at least, before something gets done. Yeah, so this is, and Todd, I, I would agree 100, 100% on those items. There is, the likelihood that we see an infrastructure bill is very, very low. I mean, there's just not enough money in the pot, given what we're, we're seeing. The only th time I see an infrastructure bill coming into play is if the economy continues to sour and be problematic and they are starting to look at ways to uh, get people back employed and trying to turn turn things turn things around and so that's the only way i see that that happening at least in the next several several years uh, and i will reiterate what todd said about businesses want predictability and the one thing that the current administration has said, and they are very proud of this, is that that they don't want the predictability. Like they they like keeping everybody on their toes. From a business perspective, it's very hard to uh, put a plan together. 
in that. And that's the, I think that's one of the key differences between the two different um, potential administrations uh, is I think Biden is, is trying and wanting to be able to telegraph where he wants to go on stuff. And I think a lot of people have different opinions on that, but, but in general, those are, those are kind of fundamental uh, things. Now, you can have structural differences of, of what the policy looks like. And I think that they're very different. They're dramatically different. Um, so in the short term, I don't think you see a noticeable difference, whoever wins, uh, in what the, um, what the freight market looks like, because I think COVID is the overriding emphasis right now. I think that can drive it. And then the global markets are already doing their, their things. I think too much is already kind of happening that that can't materially change. Yeah, but I think as you move into the first part of next year, depending how how the administration, whichever administration is there, however they decide to telegraph what that looks like, and if businesses feel like, oh, I can work in that environment, I think that will be a big a big deal. And so, um, so yeah, I I just and God, and then when you look at the amount of debt we have. Uh, I, I think that they had to go do some of the things that they did personally. Uh, but then longer term structurally, how do you get yourself out of the amount of debt that's, that's there? Um, either you, you've got to come up with a really aggressive plan to deal with that, or you better hope to heck that you've got an economy that's growing really, really fast. And, um, and I don't think, uh, I don't think the fundamentals are there for that type of growth to get you out of, out of that hole. But, um, but we'll just have to see. I mean, this, my concern right now too, is that we're on the edge of, um, of things could be really, really bad here. Um, if, if something doesn't, if it doesn't get in, uh, we don't get things under control relatively soon, just because of some of the uh, employment situation, uh, mm -hmm. that we're seeing. It's not just the standard, um, you know, blue collar worker, you know, that's kind of, um, uh, sitting off to the side. I mean, it's pervasive throughout. It's hitting it hit all the service sectors. It's now moving itself up through the corporations. It's it's not just uh, the low wage worker that we were talking about before. You know, this could this is, could have some real implications. And then finally, the the other one too is the money that's going in for unemployment benefits right now. Most of the states, over forty of the states. Uh, have have gotten uh, on board on that and uh, you know you're getting three hundred dollars in benefit but by the time most of them get them approved and through uh, it'll be a one-time payment out and then they're done so it's it's like the money is already pretty much spent for the most part so um, so we'll just kind of have to see how this all plays out and I mean this yeah. is really you're talking about the political arena in a lot of cases here and that's very unpredictable. And I just, and honestly, I don't see Congress coming up with a compromise in September uh, to to deal with some of the issues that we that we're looking at. Um, so I think everybody kicks the, they kick the can until after the election, and it's unclear what the heck they'll do after the election then too. Uh, so I just think there's a lot of question marks here. And I'll tell you, I think this lame duck. A lot of people in Washington, lame ducks either go one way or the other. They're either super packed sessions or nothing gets done. This tends toward the get nothing done lame duck, particularly if there's a change in control. They, the two sides do not like each other. 
They would have no impetus to compromise on anything at that point. And I think this is a lame duck where if you're counting on getting something done in the lame duck, count on it not getting done. But you know what's really fascinating, though, is that on some of the bigger uh, ticket items that they were talking about, like uh, payroll protection plan, PPP, um, some of the unemployment benefits and stuff, um, I think most everybody in Congress were on a similar page, by and large, but they still couldn't get it through. And so, and some of those things, if you if you believe that they needed to structurally be there, and they're not going to happen uh, until you know if and when any type of thing happens after January of next year, that's basically too late. If those things really need to happen, and that's where one of the things is. is you know, there's a there's a robust debate about that right now. I believe that they need to be putting some money uh, into this and uh, making sure that small businesses don't go under, and that you have people have money in their pocket to pay for for things that they that they are needing from a necessity standpoint. Um, because I just I think that we're very close to the edge right now. And but if you look at some things in transportation, look at trucking, doesn't feel that way. Right, doesn't feel close to the edge, uh, but you got other things in the different parts of the service sectors that it feels close to the edge, and so there is a huge disconnect fundamentally in the way this economy is behaving, and not everybody is uh, seeing it the same way. So there you go. No, it, it, very thoughtful discussion around all of that. Um, I believe, looking through the list, all of the questions uh, specifically brought up were answered. So at this point, I will uh, throw it back to you guys. And if we want to talk more, great. Or if we want to wrap up, that's fine too. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> you know me, man. I can always talk. Well, I that's, think uh, yeah, that's true. We don't have to do a handshake on, on this podcast, do we? Ooh. Oh, okay. So <laughs> thinking to, so that was the one thing we did not get a chance to bring up is so we have our secret handshake, right? Yes. So, and, and just to, to, to remind people what the secret handshake is, you know, because we're keeping it secret among ourselves. We're not letting the rest of the world. Exactly. It's slap, slap, tap, right? Uh, forearm bump, forearm bump. And then before we used to do the Hulk, and then we changed it to the lean back. What? So in this COVID world now, we're not doing the slap, slap, tap. We can't touch each other, right? <laughs> so we can just walk up to each other, throw our hands back and go, whoa. whoa. See? So so it still, we go. it still works. There we <laughs> go. Uh, you know, that is a hell of a way to end this podcast. Uh, again, we, we really appreciate FTR's time, uh, efforts, all the, the knowledge passed to Mars and uh, all the folks on here. So again, I want to thank both uh, Todd and Eric. Thank you very much. Uh, and again, this is Stefan Loeb, President of Mars, and appreciate everyone attending both last week's session and listening to the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today as we answered questions from our joint webinar with Mars. All of the upcoming FTR webinars that you're able to attend can be viewed by going to www.ftrintel.com forward slash webinars. From a rail standpoint, we have several key events in 2020, especially within our FTR Engage virtual speaking series. Join us in October for the future of rail and intermodal, and again in November for our Rail Car Lower for Longer session. 
Again, go to www.ftrintel.com forward slash webinars for information about those sessions and many more. If you're new to the State of Freight podcast, be sure to subscribe and follow along as we publish updates each week with the rail market update and the trucking market update. You can find all information about the State of Freight podcast online at www.ftrintel.com forward slash podcast. And you can also subscribe by searching for FTR through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. Thank you for listening to FTR on the State of Freight podcast.